You are listening to audio from Pastor Mark Driscoll. To find more helpful content like this, as well as daily devotions, Ask Pastor Mark videos, resources for leaders, and much more, visit markdriscoll.org. While there, you can also make a donation that will help support the ministry and subscribe to continue getting Bible-based teaching. If you live in or are visiting the greater Phoenix Valley, please feel free to come and see Pastor Mark at the Trinity Church in Scottsdale, Arizona. Thank you for listening and being a part of Mark Driscoll Ministries. And remember, it's all about Jesus. Alrighty, we're in John chapter two, and I'm gonna ask one word, and I want you just to to be self-aware and to just consider for a moment. When I say this one word, what is your initial first emotional reaction? You ready? Okay, you ready? It doesn't matter. I'm gonna ask it either way. Okay, here we go. Alcohol. Welcome to the Trinity Church. We have a recovery ministry for those who... Okay, well, that, that, that's one answer, okay. Some of you are like, huh, I'm hungover. I didn't hear the question. Okay, welcome to the Trinity Church. You're welcome. You need to be here as well. When, when that question is asked and that word is heard, it really comes with a tremendous amount of emotional baggage and carry-on for a lot of people. Some of you, when you first hear that word alcohol, your first thought is, is positive. You think, no, I've not struggled with it. It mainly brings to mind communion with the Lord Jesus in my wedding reception and other you know, festivities with family, but I've never struggled with it. It's never been an issue. It's primarily positive. If that's your first emotional response, you just need to know you're probably in a, in a small percentage of people. Some of you, it's not negative, it's neutral. You're like, well, I've seen good and bad. My past was bad with the issue, but my present, I feel like I have self-control. So it's kind of a mixed bag. And for me, it's neutral. For, I would say perhaps most of you, that first initial emotional response is, is negative. You're saying, my, my dad was a drunk. He was a mean, nasty, cruel man. He would have too much to drink and then horrible things would happen. Some of you would say, boy, my first marriage was destroyed by alcohol. The, the spouse I had, they, they just shipwrecked our entire family. Some of you would say it's been a generational issue and it's been going on for a long time and you hope it stops with you. For some of you, you look back in your life and you say some of the most regrettable things I've said and done were under the influence of alcohol. It never made me smarter or holier. And a lot of the problems in my past are because of the amount that I consumed. That being said, we're going to get into the issue of alcohol today. Say, why is Pastor Mark bringing this up? Well, I believe that church is for many things, but it's for people to come and to meet with God. I believe it's for God's people to meet one another. And I believe it's to get God's perspective on practical issues in your life. And this issue of alcohol is a big issue. It is in many regards a social crisis. It is causing a lot of pain and problems for many individuals and families. And, And the reason I bring it up is not just to pick on the issue, but because I'm a Bible teacher and we're in John chapter two today, verses one through 12. And it's the first of Jesus, roughly three dozen miracles. It's the only one recorded in John's gospel. The other gospels, I should say, do not include it. And it's Jesus turning water into? wine. So we have to first deal with alcohol. So this is like a group on Sunday. You get two sermons today. The first, you're welcome. The first sermon will be about alcohol. And then the second sermon will be about Jesus turning water into 
wine. That's where we're going today. So let me start with this, alcohol legally. Hebrews 13, one. This is just a general overarching biblical principle for God's people. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. God does not hold rebellion in high regard. In fact, the angels obeyed and the demons rebelled, right? Rebellion is demonic. The Bible says it's as the sin of witchcraft. So we live in a culture that sort of promotes rebellion, God promotes respect for authority. And so what God wants us to honor and respect is not only God's authority, but governmental authority so that there can be some degree and measure of social order. So what tends to happen is there are God's laws and there are government laws and the government laws set the basis for basically minimal social order. God's laws call us to a higher standard. And so, uh, for example, the government doesn't have a law against adultery, but God does. Uh, the, the government doesn't have a law against bitterness, but God does. Um, the, the government doesn't have a law against hating someone in your heart, but God does. Because God's standards are higher than government standards. God's expectations for his people are higher than for the people who do not have his spirit. That being said, when it comes to subjecting ourselves to governing authorities, we should at the minimum hold to those standards of our government provided they're not in disagreement with God's law. So what does this mean practically? It means practically you should not consume alcohol unless you're how old in America? 21, that's the law. If your blood alcohol level is over a certain percentage, you should not get behind the wheel of a car and drive. It means that you should not buy or provide alcohol for a minor. Um, that these are things that are required as minimal standards by the government. And as God's people, we need to ascribe and subscribe to those minimal standards. But in addition to that, God has some additional standards that are higher. Now that's alcohol legally. Let me give you a little bit of information about alcohol historically, because here's what happens in our world. We're born into a culture. It's all we've ever known. And so for us, it seems normative. Now, that's all I've ever known, seems normal to me. Historically, God's people and their relationship with alcohol is a bit different than what most of us would think of in American terms. I'll give you some examples. St. Gall was a missionary to the Celts and a renowned brewer. A lot of you know, pastors, a lot of uh, monks were brewers and winemakers. After Charlemagne's reign, the church became Europe's exclusive brewer. When a young woman was to marry, any young gals engaged to be married or got a wedding coming up? Well, what would happen is the men in the church would create a special brew, a beer for the reception for that woman. It was called the bridal ale. It's where we actually get the word bridal. That's where it comes from. You're welcome. Welcome to Jeopardy. Um, in addition, um, John Calvin, any of you heard of John Calvin? He's one of the great Protestant reformers. His annual salary package, I couldn't imagine negotiating this with the board. It included 250 gallons of, wa of wine a year. That was part of his compensation package. How many of you would love that negotiation? <laughs> well, I'd like to talk about my compensation. I want uh, benefits. One of those would be 250 gallons of wine. He didn't consume it all himself. It was for events and parties and the like. Um, Martin Luther was a guy in the Protestant Reformation and he liked his drink, he wasn't an alcoholic, but he did 
described the Protestant Reformation in this way. While I sat still and drank a beer with Philip and Amsdorf, God dealt the papacy a mighty blow. That's his description of the entire Protestant Reformation. What happened? I don't know. We sat down and drank beer. Next thing you know, the Catholics lost. You know, and, uh, <laughs> so uh, now let me tell you a little bit more about Martin Luther because it's fun. Martin Luther was married to a... None. This is a great story, okay? So he is a monk and he goes into a con, he, he, he leads this jailbreak from a convent on Easter, <laughs> right? Hey, Jesus is alive. Let's go rescue the nuns. So they, they go into the convent and they jailbreak the nuns. They, they, they smuggle them out on Easter and all of the nuns get married except for one. Her name is Catherine. She's a little complicated. So she goes to Martin Luther and she says, you either find me a husband or marry me. She's a little direct. And so no one would marry her, so he married her. And then in Germany, this great conflict arose because there was a myth, a legend, a fable, a folklore that the Antichrist would come from the illicit union of a renegade priest and nun. So when he married her and got her pregnant, it trended on Twitter in a big way. And so, uh, but she not only was a prior nun, she also was a renowned brewer. Pregnant nun brewer, okay? I mean, I, right now we have our own reality television show all teed up. And so what, what happened was, and I've read their love letters, when they were apart, Martin Luther would write his wife, Catherine, things like this in the love letters, dearest Catherine, I really, really miss you and your beer, love Martin. <laughs> it's a little bit different. Um, how many of you have heard of the Puritans landing on Plymouth Rock? Okay, you heard of that? Um, do you know what the first permanent building that they erected on Plymouth Rock was? A brewery. You guys are catching on, smart crowd. All right, now all of this starts to pivot and transition in the United States of America. So in the 20th century, we have the temperance movement because men, quite frankly, are drinking too much. There's, there are people that are alcoholics and creating social disorder. They're not loving and leading their families humbly. Men are becoming violent and irresponsible. And so as a result, there is the temperance movement, which makes alcohol largely outlawed. Now you get moonshine, you get alcohol runners, you get speakeasies, you get underground breweries and things of that sort and kind. And so much of what we know as American culture is largely influenced historically by the temperance movement, including communion. So what happened was when alcohol was outlawed, there were God's people saying, what do we do for communion? There was a guy named Dr. Thomas Welch. He was a Methodist minister, created something called Welch's grape juice so that God's people could partake of communion without violating the laws of not having alcohol. So today um, we tend to think in the lens of our cultural experience. And so in America, much of the drinking is done where? In a bar. Most of the time, let's just say that a bar is not the kind of place that you're gonna find all the commandments being obeyed, okay? Let's just say that. Now, if you go to Europe, a lot of the drinking happens where? In a pub. Is a pub different than a bar? Say yes. You guys are very smart. Good observation. So what happens is a pub is very different than a bar. When I went to Europe, uh, go into a pub, usually they're hundreds of years old. They feel a lot like a big living room. 
And there are older people playing dominoes and cards. And I was shocked sitting in a pub in Ireland um, some years ago when school let out, all the school kids came into the pub, not to get a drink, but to do their homework. Would you allow your kids to go do their homework at a bar? No. Say no. <laughs> You're like, I'm not even a Christian. I know the answer to that question. That's a terrible <laughs> idea. It is. Because usually a bar is dark and it is loud and people are wearing underwear as outerwear and they drink too much, okay? We'll edit that out. But that's a true observation. And what happens is that when we think of alcohol and all of that, we think of all of the use and abuse and social disorder and sort of the bar culture. How many of you singles don't like the bar culture? How many of you ladies are like, I can't find a good guy at the bar? Amen, sister. Welcome to the Trinity Church. Okay, so your odds are better here. And what we tend to think of is in American context and historically it's been a little more British and European. That being said, today when it comes to the issue of alcohol, you will find some Christians who believe that it can and should be consumed in moderation. This would be Presbyterians, Lutherans, Catholics. There are those who would say, absolutely not. God, this is a crazy conversation. Why would God's people even partake? Those would be your Baptists, your Methodists, and those who come from your holiness and Pentecostal and charismatic traditions. And I love and have dear friends who love Jesus on both sides. And the question is, well, what does the Bible have to say? What does the Bible have to say? We've looked at alcohol legally, we've looked at it historically, let's look at it biblically. Um, the, uh, the, the very bottom line would be in Ephesians chapter five, verse 18, do not get drunk. What does that mean in the Greek? Don't get drunk. <laughs> what do they mean by that in the first century? Don't get drunk. Same thing your mom meant, don't get drunk, it, all the same. Don't get drunk with wine for that is debauchery. How many of you, don't raise your hand, but, um, but when you drank too much, you did some really debased things. I, I've never seen alcohol, I've never seen someone say, when I drink, I get smarter, my discernment increases, and I find that my life goes in a really remarkable direction toward the glory of God. I've just never had that conversation with anybody. When we drink too much, we make very foolish decisions and our life leads to debauchery. It says to instead be filled with the spirit. The problem is when you are drinking to avoid your life, when you're drinking to avoid your problems, when you're drinking to forget your reality. And what happens is sometimes we get afraid, we get discouraged, we get despondent, we get overwhelmed. And rather than going to God and say, God, I'm up against something here that is very discouraging or very difficult, I invite the Holy Spirit to empower me to walk through it. Instead, we retreat to the liquor cabinet and we try to avoid it. Okay, you don't need to be filled with spirits when the times are tough. You need to be filled with the spirit when the times are tough. It's not that all alcohol consumption is a sin, but what he is saying is when life gets hard, you need God to fill you, not the alcohol to self-medicate you. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. So at the very basis, let's all start in a place that we can agree. And that is that all of God's people who actually believe the Bible believe drunkenness is a sin. Not only that, it, it, is, it is suffering that ensues from sinning. God loves you, God has a great life for you. And, and I could show it to you in the Bible, I don't have time to do it, but whenever people get drunk, horrible things happen. Violence, murder, sexual sin, losing of job, destroying a family, horrible things happen. The same things that continue to happen, and that is a lot of pain. And so you need to know that this is my view of God. My view of God is that God is a loving father. I believe this is the Bible's view of God. And when God tells us not to do something, he puts up a fence because if we jump the fence, we hurt ourselves. 
See, if you've got little kids, do you put up a fence at your house? Yeah. Because if the kids just keep going, they're gonna hurt themselves. And you want them to go outside and have a lot of freedom and joy in the context of safety. I see God as a father, I see his laws as a fence, and anytime we hop the fence, we hurt ourselves. And God is a dad who's saying, go outside and enjoy your whole life. But if you, if you disobey one of my rules, if you hop over the fence that I have made, that is not freedom, that is suffering that awaits you on the other side. And some of you have experienced that. Some of you are like, I'm gonna go try, and you're like, that did not work, right? That did not work. So at the very least, let's say that drunkenness is a sin and it's a sin that causes very much suffering. Well, then there are three basic positions that Christians who do love Jesus, do believe the Bible. And I have dear friends and pastors and leaders and theologians in every category, but I wanna deal with each of these and sort of explain them. Most of you either intentionally or sort of unintentionally hold likely one of these positions. The first, and I'll call it red light, red light, yellow light. The only person that's always green light is the person that has an alcohol problem. I'm always ready, the answer's always yes. That's not a good idea, okay? It's not a breakfast food, right? It's not a good idea. So there'll be red light, red light, yellow light. Red light prohibitionists, their basic position is this, and I know I'm oversimplifying and summarizing, but it is that alcohol's evil and all alcohol consumption is a sin. So therefore, if you love God, you don't even taste, you don't even consider. The problem then becomes, who turns water into wine? Jesus does. And like, well, if it's evil, what's Jesus doing? Let me just say this. If you're more holy than Jesus, you need to scoot over, okay? Just as a general rule. You're like, Jesus, you're too liberal. He's like, oh, you need to scoot over for sure, okay? Like you're, you're a little far out there. So. So what happens is then Jesus does consume alcohol at the Passover, he would have had wine, and then he at least consumes enough that they call him a drunkard. Was Jesus a drunkard, yes or no? No, Jesus never drunk, but they, he, he had something and they falsely accused him. So what happens then, people come along and say, yeah, Jesus you know, did drink something and he did turn water into something. It is not wine, it is? It's grape juice, it's grape juice. Now there is a word in the Bible, and I wanna get into all of this, that does use the word grape juice. Maybe on certain occasions, the word in context could refer to wine or grape juice. So we could say that maybe on some occasions, the Bible is referring to a non-alcoholic or not yet fermented form of wine, but it is, I believe, biblically unfaithful and untenable to say, every time it says something, it's talking about grape juice. Cause it says, don't get drunk with wine. I don't, if it's grape juice, I don't know how much grape juice you gotta drink to get drunk. <laughs> but I'm thinking you're probably gonna drown before you get drunk if you're drinking that much grape juice, right? And so my main problem with that red light prohibitionist position, and let me you know, try and be a little bit empathetic and compassionate. If all you've ever seen is alcohol abused and it has nothing but horrific consequences for you, I understand where this position would be appealing, but my admonition would be, let's just be careful that we don't start changing the parts of the Bible that make us uncomfortable. How many of you have read the Bible? And if you have, we all have found something that made us uncomfortable, amen? You're like, oh, I wish that wasn't in there. Um, right? And, most, and, and you set a bad precedent when you're like, well, if you don't like it, change it. Because there's a lot of people who wanna do that and most of the issues are related to their pants. They don't wanna have dominion over their drawers and so they wanna rewrite what God wrote. 
Just throwing it out there as a possibility in our culture. Nonetheless, what I believe is we should say, well, if God says something, I, I need to echo that and not edit that. Okay, that's my main concern. The red light abstentionist position, and this comes from a book by a guy named Gentry, he wrote a book many years ago, a little book called God Gave Wine, and I like these perspectives and positions, and he himself is what we call a teetotaler, he doesn't consume any alcohol, so he's not arguing for his liberty or position, he's just trying to do a Bible study. But the red light abstentionist position, it ends up with the same conclusion, but does so by different reasoning, okay? So the red light abstentionist would say, alcohol's not evil, okay? And all alcohol consumption is not a sin. But so many people struggle with it. So many people abuse it. It is such an addiction and devastation cycle that out of love for people, God's people should forego their freedom and never consume so that others do not have temptation. I find this a little more reasonable because you're not trying to change what the Bible says, you're trying to appeal to the well-being of others. And there's one, one thing here I would like to commend and that is this, people matter more than issues. People matter more than issues and our relationships matter more than our freedoms. If I have to choose between my freedom and my relationship, I really value that relationship, okay? So there is something here that in principle, I, I, I appreciate. Uh, that being said, um, the, the basic premise is this, people sin with alcohol, so let's get rid of it. Here's my question. Are there other things that people sin with? Like what kinds of things? Everything, <laughs> everything, people sin with everything. And so if we make a rule, well, if people sin with it, let's get rid of it. Next thing you know, we've gotten rid of everything. And let me say this too, the sin is not always just out there. Oftentimes the problem is, in here, how many of you have had a naughty thought and there wasn't even anything triggering it, it's just in you? How many of you have had a, a naughty temptation and it was just in you? So sometimes we think, well, if we get rid of all the temptation out there, then we won't be tempted. No, there needs to be a heart change. Otherwise, even if we get rid of everything on the earth, we still close our eyes and we think of something that is naughty. Now, now that being said, some people struggle with alcohol, but other people have other struggles. And I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hand, but let's say for example, some people struggle with food. You're like, I, some people are like, if I have one drink, I drink the whole case. Other people are like, if I have one slice, I eat the whole sheet cake. That's what I do. I have a problem with food. We have a problem with lots of things. So let me ask you this. Let's say somebody um, got drunk, got angry, put their shoes on, grabbed a stick, chased somebody and hit them with a stick. Would you say, this is why we need to outlaw alcohol, shoes and sticks? <laughs> and trees which make sticks. So you chuckle <laughs> because you can't get rid of everything that everyone uses sinfully. Let, let me give you another example. Has anybody ever used this in a wicked way? Oh yeah. So what I'm not saying is, well, let's get rid of it. Let's use it rightly. Let's use it rightly. There was a guy some years ago, he's kind of a legend in Christian circles. His name was Simon the Stylite. And he decided, I wanna get away from anything that could potentially be used in a way that is sinful. So he created a platform that was six feet off the ground and moved onto it to get away from anything that was potentially tempting. And after a while, he realized that wasn't far enough. So he got down and built another platform 50 feet up. He was a Christian 
and he lived on the platform far away from all the temptation. And, and, and he was a bit of a legend and perhaps people said, well, look at that holy man of God who's looking down on us and not doing relationship or life with us, not coming to pray and minister to others, but living closer to God and looking down on the rest of us. So pride is a sin that perhaps could have been an issue for Simon the Stylite. Now, I am saying that we all struggle and stumble with different things and we need to take those things seriously, but we cannot remove everything that people use sinfully because sinners will use anything in a way that is sinful. Let me just make a, a little observation too. Some of you are law-based parents and you thought, if I just make more rules, I'll get better kids. How did that work for you? How many of you grew up in a home where your parents had a lot of rules and you were not a great kid? Because what happens is if a rule or a law is made, but the heart is not changed, the heart just wants to do what to the rule or law? Break it, right? You're like, if I went to my kids and I said, do not light off fireworks in the house. They'd be like, never even thought of that. What a genius, what a genius idea that is, right? If their heart is not right, then all the laws that I give them are just further inciting disobedience. So sometimes what well-intended Christians will do, they'll make a lot of laws and rules, but they don't understand unless the heart changes, all people do is break those rules and laws. Paul talks about this, I'm way off my notes, but he talks about this in Romans. He says, I didn't even know what coveting was. And then somebody said, do not covet. And you're like, what's coveting? It's where you want people's stuff. He said, no, all of a sudden I wanted to covet. <laughs> oh, covet, that's a great idea. I wish I had Johnny's car, you know, I hadn't even thought of that. So if the heart doesn't change, everything externally can change, but if nothing internally changes, nothing changes. Nothing changes. So the third category that I'm gonna advocate for is yellow or light moderationists. It's not, Sometimes it's a sin, sometimes it's not. For some people it's okay, for other people it's not. Proceed with wisdom and caution. What I'm gonna press you toward here is wisdom. It's saying, God, okay, in your word, is there anything directly or principally that speaks to me about whatever the issue might be that I struggle with, including alcohol? How about wise counsel? People who know the Lord, people who know me, what do they have to say? I wanna open my ears so that I can receive correction and instruction. Um, what about my times with the Lord in prayer and seeking his will for my life? Is this something that I have a conviction in my own spirit from the Holy Spirit? Those kinds of things. And what does wisdom dictate? Is this building or breaking my relationship with God? Is this in obedience to 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. It's asking these questions of wisdom, of wisdom. Now, what I like about this position, this moderationist position, and that is that nobody should overconsume. at the very least. Some people should not consume at all. Those who do consume should consume in moderation. A couple of things that I like about this. Number one, it distinguishes between God's laws and my rules. Some of you need to know there's a difference. Does God have laws? Yeah, and we all should abide by all of God's laws. In addition, there are my rules. My rules, are not for everybody, they're just for me. Is it okay for you to have your rules? For you. We call this living by your conscience. The Bible talks a lot about your conscience. And so it, your rules are not a problem as, as long as they're your rules. The problem becomes when I take my rules and I demand that they are your rules, they're now your rules. 
Or then I pretend these are God's rules. We call this legalism. That's where legalism starts. You can have rules for you, but you can't make rules for other people and you can't pretend that they're God's laws, that each person needs to obey God's laws and each live by conscience. Okay, that's what we're arguing and advocating for. Another reason that I like this position is I believe that taking through law is bad, but giving through love is good. Let me explain this, okay? Let's say you want something from me. Is there a difference from you taking it versus me giving it? Is there a difference? See, to you, you may think, well, there's no difference, I got it. To me, there's a big difference because one, I got to give it in love and the other, it was just taken from me. The believer, the Christian has freedoms in Christ. I am not a fan of taking them through making laws. I am a fan of giving them because of love. I'll give you an example. Um, some years ago, I was doing premarital counseling for a young married couple. And they, uh, the man had had a bad history of alcohol abuse and addiction. And by God's grace, he, he overcame that. He was walking in sobriety and freedom. And uh, in the premarital process, he disclosed to his fiance, he very open. He said, this is part of my past. This is what it caused and created. And he said, uh, I don't think alcohol is evil. I don't think all alcohol consumption is a sin. But if we're gonna be married, you just need to know I can't have alcohol in the house. Because for me, I just get in trouble. And if we go out to dinner and you order a drink, that's gonna really, if I smell it, it's, it's a temptation for me. He said, so what I would ask you, you are free to partake, but would you give up that freedom so that we could have a healthy relationship? What's the answer? Yeah, she said, I love you. She said, I am willing to give up my freedom out of love and for the sake of the relationship. And it, they had a beautiful marriage. And she just decided, my husband doesn't drink, I don't drink. Now, if a religious person walked up to her and said, right, it's evil, good thing you abstain. She'd say, no, 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 it's not evil. And I love my husband more than my freedom. And the relationship matters more than the issue. And I have given it to him, that freedom. He hasn't taken it from me. Do you understand the difference? There's a big difference, isn't there? Because this allows love in a way that law does not. See, that's what we're talking about. So let's say you are a single person and you go to move in with somebody and they've struggled with alcohol. And they say, could you give up that freedom and not have it in the house? The answer is, yeah, I love you. And if you, if you decide that's not what you wanna do, don't move in. And don't say, I'm gonna pour a drink and I'm free in Christ and you gotta deal with it because then you're making the freedom more important than the issue. You're making uh, the freedom more important than the relationship. That's why I like this position. I believe that love um, carries us much further than law. I'll give you a, another reason that I like this as well. And I think it's okay for all of us to make our rules, my rules. I've got a friend of mine who was a recovering drug addict. When they go in for dental work or medical work, they say, I can't have these kinds of pain medications after the surgery, because that could trigger me back into an addiction cycle. I can't do that. that. What he would say is, that's my rules. What he wouldn't say is, everybody who gets that painkiller after surgery is in wicked rebellion against God. 
That's, that's not God's rules, that's his rules. It's okay to have your rules to govern your life according to conscience while submitting to God's laws. Another reason that I like this moderationist position, it gives the freedom and flexibility for you to change your position depending upon your life circumstances. You may think in one season it's okay, another season it's not. I'll give you an example. Some years ago, I knew a, an older couple a really dear couple, they loved each other. And for them, after a long, hard week, they would get together on Friday and they would plan a big meal. They both liked to cook. So they'd meet in the kitchen, they'd start prepping their dinner and they would choose a specific pairing bottle of wine for the meal. These were wine aficionados. These were not wine in a box people. These were, these were real wine people. So they would pour their wine and they would chop their dinner and they would visit and talk and pray and how's your week? And they'd prepare the meal, they'd sit down and eat. They'd, this was a lengthy night. This was like their date night on Friday. Is that okay? All the wives said yes. Okay, so it is. So um, what happened then was his wife died and he's a widow. And uh, how are you doing? Not good. I really love my wife. I really miss my wife. And honestly, I'm in a grief cycle. So how's that going? Well, not so good. Friday nights is the hardest time of the week. It used to be my favorite time of the week, but now she's gone and I miss her. So I don't cook dinner and I'm by myself and I drink a whole bottle of wine. He said, I don't feel like this is a healthy habit. So I think I should stop for now. Answer? Yeah. That's wisdom. It doesn't mean you were sinning before when you had a glass of wine with your wife. It doesn't mean that if life pivots or transition or God gives you a wonderful relationship in the future, that it would be a sin to have a glass of wine on date night. But for now, this is not wise for you. This is not healthy for you. This is not good for you. And I'm not gonna be your pastor who makes a law and says it's evil and wicked. I'm gonna be your pastor who loves you and says, I think you should give up that freedom for now because you're in a grief cycle and this isn't a healthy process for you. Okay. This is, so somebody asked, why are we talking about this? Because we're a new church and we all come in here and it's like, what, what do we do with this? Again, I believe God's people come to church to meet with God, to meet each other and to get God's perspective on important issues in their life. And how do we interact and how do we operate? This is our position here at the Trinity Church. And you'll notice when we partake of communion a little bit, we have two glasses. One is wine, the other is Grape juice, and what we're saying is, we love you, welcome. Whatever works for you works for us. And it's our way of modeling relationship over issues. Relationship over issues. Um, some of you will ask, um, but Pastor Mark, you don't have empathy or compassion or sympathy, or do you understand the pain that some families have in regards to this issue? So let me close with, and by close, I mean close the first sermon. You're gonna get another one in a moment. <laughs> This is the first sermon, the other one's coming. So let me tell you a little bit about my story. We are O'Driscoll from County Cork, Southern Ireland, okay? Um, and uh, I went there on a bit of a tour with my dad some years ago. And we were a people that had fortified castles and then there was a political upheaval and we were dispossessed. And so the family got together and I don't know how this worked, but they decided that they would pivot their family career choice to becoming pirates. I kid you not, like all in favor, one, two, three, hey, we all voted and we all, we decided we would become pirates. And some of you are like, Mark has a lot of growing to do. 
Look at how far I've come. Be encouraging, okay? Um, the fact is I have two eyes and I haven't stolen anything today. So I'm doing really good, you know? So nonetheless, what happens is there was a ship, ships would sail through the Baltimore Harbor in uh, Southern Ireland and my clan would roll out and seize and rob the ship, pirates. One of the ships that we seized and robbed was a Spanish ship. This is in the history of Ireland, was a Spanish ship filled with wine. And we seized it, okay? So we're not just pirates, we're liquor pirates, okay? So you get this? This, this is a little indication that we don't do well with alcohol, okay? So what happens then is the Spaniards get so upset, they send out soldiers to take a bunch of Irishmen as slaves in compensation. We triggered a national incident stealing alcohol. That's my family, okay? So then the potato famine hits, a bunch of us are starving to death. We get on a coffin ship. We come to the United States of America. We land in New York, they don't really want us. So we end up over in Minnesota, North Dakota to become red potato farmers. Oh, would you believe that? The Irish guys are making spuds. So we end up in Minnesota, North Dakota. That's what we do. That's where I was born on the family homestead. It was generations of alcohol abuse and violent men. We moved from that place when I was really little in large part because of the alcoholism and violent abusive men. I wanna publicly thank and honor my dad. He loves Jesus and I love my dad. It all stopped with my dad. my dad. My dad did not consume drugs. My dad did not abuse alcohol. I grew up in a home that didn't have that kind of addiction and abuse cycle. I was surrounded by it in our neighborhood, but it was not in our home. And my parents told me, uh, we're going forward, uh, we're not going backward. So your family's like this and that's not how we're doing it. And I praise God for that for that kind of family and upbringing. So I never drank, never did drugs. I've never even smoked a cigarette. I was high self-control, scared of getting into trouble. And I have relatives that this has destroyed their life. I have a cousin who's about my age with addiction cycles, including alcohol, who has been on the television show Cops and was not the cop, okay? <laughs> right? <laughs> so it's an issue. As I understand it, his dad, my uncle, died of gangrene. Got stabbed or injured, wouldn't stop drinking. They kept chopping off parts until it gets to vital organs and kills him. Literally drank himself to death, okay? So I know it can be a very serious problem. I did not partake of any alcohol. Grace and I get married um, in college at the age of 21. Occasionally we'd go out for dinner. Grace would say, can I order a glass of wine? My answer was, yeah, I don't struggle with it. I, I'm not, I've never been drunk. I don't drink. You know, to me, at that point, it was about the same as eating a lawnmower. You know, like, like I never woke up and was like, oh, I really want to eat a lawnmower. I got to white knuckle my way through the day. I never even thought of getting drunk. It wasn't an issue for me. It never came to mind. So Grace would have a glass of wine with dinner or whatever. Like, yeah, that's fine, honey. I love you. And this doesn't cause me any trouble. I just don't partake. I worked at my first church and they made me sign a covenant. It was a prohibitionist church. They said, well, you agree to not consume any alcohol. I told them, I said, as a young man, I said, I will not consume because I don't consume, but I do hold this position, not that position. You need to know that I don't think it's evil and sinful, but I do believe in submitting to spiritual authority and honoring godly leaders. And so I'll sign it and I'll abide by it. So that's what I did. Around the age of 30, I was a pastor, husband, father. I felt that 
my conscience had shifted. And so now I hold the moderationist position. I will occasionally have a glass of wine or something else. This is the position at Trinity Church. For some of you, the answer is no. For some of you, the answer is yes. We all need to obey the government's laws. We all need to obey God's laws. And when we're making decisions in relationship with others, we need to consider not just our freedom, but our friendships, amen? Okay, there's your first sermon. Um, your second one now starts in John chapter two. So uh, we're gonna look at Jesus turning water into wine. This is his first miracle. It's only recorded in John's gospel. The kingdom of God is like a wedding party. John chapter two, verses one through five. On the third day, there was a wedding. How many of you love weddings? You love weddings? Weddings are fun. Weddings are awesome. As long as the people love each other and they should be getting married, it's a really fun time. And the mother of Jesus was there. There's Mary. Jesus was also invited. Here's what I wanna show you. Jesus got invited to parties. Jesus is fun. Jesus is awesome. Let me say this. If you get married, you should invite Jesus to your wedding. Amen? They invite Jesus to their wedding and he shows up. If you invite Jesus to your wedding, he'll show up. Amen? And here's what happens. Jesus is fun to hang out with. That's why people keep inviting him to parties and kids wanna hang out with him. The religious people didn't get this. They're like, what is wrong with him? People enjoy him. They keep inviting him to the parties. Nothing wrong with Jesus, everything wrong with you. You're no fun at all. You're religious. Jesus though is a great time. Not only does he get invited to the party, so do all of his disciples. Dun, 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 dun. When the wine ran out, uh-oh, the wine ran out. The mother of Jesus said to him, this is a bit of an awkward conversation. Mary comes to Jesus, they have no wine. They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, which in the English sounds a little bit like woman. It's not exactly like that, right? Not exactly like that. It is a little more endearing in the original, but woman, uh, what does this have to do with me? <laughs> Some of husbands are like, I got a new life verse right there. I got myself a new life verse. <laughs> I just made that up. That's, see, that's, that's free stuff, right? This is free right there. All right. Woman, what does this have to do with me? Right? <laughs> we'll let that roll for a while. You're welcome. We're, we're putting the fun back into fundamentalism here. That's good. All right. My hour has not yet come. Mom, I was gonna debut my global ministry and it wasn't by you giving me a chore at a wedding reception to fix the bar. Uh, his mother, this is a great line. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. We should all be servants and do whatever he tells us. Well, this is a little bit of an awkward conversation. Oh, they're out of wine, Jesus, make some wine. Mom, I'm 30, first of all, you can't give me a chore chart. Second, I am God. And so I don't feel like I should get bossed around anymore. All right? it's like, when I was little, I did my chores, but we're kind of over that now. And uh, since I made you, you should just let me decide what I'm gonna do, okay? So uh, <laughs> how many of you, you love your mom, but you still have awkward conversations with her, amen? It's biblical. That's all I'm saying, it is biblical. Now in the ancient weddings, it was a big deal. You grow up in a small town, you fall in love, right? When you're little, you're in a small town. There's only a couple of options to marry somebody. And so as a little kid, you're like, oh, yes, there's Susie. Johnny loves, her. hi Susie. And then Susie 
hates Johnny because that's how every relationship starts. And then eventually it warms up and they get older and they fall in love and they get engaged and they schedule their wedding and the whole town comes out and the groom and the groomsmen, they go pick up the bride from mom's house. There's a big torchlight parade into the grand great wedding celebration. It's beautiful. How many of you ladies have been planning this since you were a really little girl? You, you single guys need to know that the, the ladies are always way ahead of you. If you're on your first date thinking, she's nice. She's thinking, our third kid's name will be Tony. <laughs> she's way ahead of you, right? <laughs> she's way ahead of you. I noticed this raising sons and daughters. I know this is controversial, but it's true. I haven't said anything controversial, so I feel like this would be a good point to do so. Uh, <laughs> But raising three boys and two girls, I'll let you know a little secret, they're different, okay? They are different. I, I never saw my boys growing up get all dressed up in tuxes. What are you doing, boys? Well, I'm preparing for my nuptials. Uh, someday I will be married and I'm playing wedding dress-up day. I've never seen that from my kids. My daughters, however, I have seen princess fairy bride dress-up. Have you ever seen that? Little girls do all the time, little shoes, little, what are you doing, like practicing? I came home the other day, there was a show on, a whole marathon of shows, didn't know that this existed, for, what's it called, Lexi, the wedding dress show? Yes to the dress. Say yes to the dress, thank you. <laughs> thank you, my dear. So I come home, it is a wedding dress marathon, say yes to the dress. Every episode, the same. A girl gets up, they put a dress on her. Hate it, hate it, hate it, hate it, hate it, love it. Yes, we all cry. I'm like, we don't even need a man. We, we, they're, they're all happy and feel like this is good enough. So they're all, and I walk in and for me and the brothers, it's, it's like kryptonite for super. I'm like, what the heck, get out of. <laughs> Say yes to the dress is on all day, it's a marathon. And I'm like, I pretty much know how every episode's gonna end. This is not really a cliffhanger. And what, so I just thought, this is amazing. My lovely daughter watched it all day. I did not. Other than trying to figure out what the price range is so I could factor that into the budget for when we say yes to some dress. All that to say, ladies on your wedding day, you want everything to be? Her, they said it. I just want heaven for a day. That's all you want. That's it, just one thing. It's pressure on the rest of us, just so you know. Okay, so what happens here is, is this her perfect day? No. The caterer did not bring enough sufficient supplies for all of the guests. So we're gonna get Jesus involved. What I love about this, Jesus will show up at your wedding and Jesus is willing to meet practical needs. And here's the question, why would Jesus, why would God have the first miracle of roughly three dozen be at a wedding? Here's why. Weddings are echoes and dress rehearsals of the kingdom of God. They are. The Bible opens with a wedding in Genesis 2. Husband, wife, been a long day, she just got created, met God, is going to her wedding. Her groom shows up in his birthday suit. It's the only suit he had. They get married, it's a big day. That's where the story opens. The Bible opens with a wedding. Do you know that the Bible in all of human history closes with a wedding? Revelation 19, I think it's verses six through eight. The wedding supper of the lamb has come. 
The kingdom of God, the eternal kingdom of God is a party that's like a wedding where Jesus is like a groom and the church's people are like a bride and they're loved and they, they have a party that never ends, amen? So it makes sense that Jesus would begin the unveiling of his glorious kingdom at a wedding showing loving relationship and what celebration and provision looks like. Some of you have a very false and inaccurate and unhelpful view of heaven. Most people, their view of heaven is, I'm gonna be a chubby baby <laughs> in a diaper. <sighs> right? For me right now, that's hell. I believe that we have totally gotten it upside down, but I will be a chubby baby wearing a diaper, plinking on a harp, sitting on a cloud with wings too far to take me away. Uh, it's just a horrible picture. How many men are not motivated by that? <laughs> All living men are not motivated by that. That is not God's picture of the kingdom. God's picture of the kingdom is a, a tailgate party. That's it? That's it? For real? Tailgate, okay. How about, how about a great celebration, a feast, a party, a holiday? When's the last time that you got together with awesome people, everybody was in a great mood, the food was amazing, and nobody did anything ridiculous, and it was a really good time. Heaven is like that forever. That's what it's like forever. Heaven is like an all-inclusive resort where Jesus picks up the tab. Do you love all-inclusive resorts? Say yes. Yeah. Good observation. Okay, in an all-inclusive resort, you show up, everything's nice. You're like, what would you like to eat? Well, what can I have? Whatever you want, then I will have everything. Um, gluttony. And, uh, and, and what can I drink? Well, whatever you want. The kingdom of God is where we take nothing, we lack nothing and everybody's happy and it's a party that lasts forever and the sun is out and Jesus is the host and Jesus provides. So all of this is practice, preparation, anticipation for the kingdom of God. Next slide, please. The kingdom of God is like a party at Jesus' house. Now there were six stone water jars. How many? We do a little math here, stretch you out, okay? For the Jewish rite of purification. So these are sacred, holy vessels for cleansing you to be ritually clean in the sight of God, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. So six times 20, like public school, I don't know. 120, okay? Six times 30, 180. This is 120 to 180 gallons. He's gonna turn this into Wine, okay, Baptist grandma right now, grab your seat. <laughs> grab your seat, Baptist grandma. Jesus made how much wine? 120 to 180 gallons in a baptismal. This is the equivalent. <laughs> Did he say that? Oh, he says, he says other stuff too, it's unbelievable. Okay, so um, these are sacred ceremonial. This would be like you're at a wedding in a Baptist church and they're like, we're out of, we're out of refreshments. All right. Fill up the baptismal, Shazam, Cabernet. Whole baptismal filled with Cabernet. I'm the only one who thinks that's interesting. Okay, fine. <laughs> Doesn't matter to me. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. They filled them up to the brim. He said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. So they take it to the caterer. Well, Jesus said to take the water and bring it to you. When the master of the feast tasted the water, it now become wine. Ooh, this is the good stuff. 
This is the silver oak Cabernet. This is, the, this is not the two buck chuck you get at Trader Joe's. This is not the stuff that comes in a box, right? This is not stuff that the high school kids stole from the 7-Eleven. This is the real perfect. You know what? I, didn't, I probably shouldn't say this. I mean, unlike other things I've said today, but <laughs> Jesus does things perfectly. This was probably pretty good. Amen? Amen? Amen, okay. Tasted the water, become wine, did not know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast, right, the caterer called the bridegroom and said to him, ah, I heard we were out and they found like a hundred and some gallons. It's awesome. Everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, right, their discernment goes down, <laughs> the, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine till now. The good wine till now. The kingdom of God is like a party where Jesus provides everything and everything is excellent. That's why we believe in living kingdom down, not culture up. We wanna do things well to the glory of God. We want to. I'll give you a prophecy from Isaiah 25, six. It's given in advance of this event. The Lord of heaven's army, so the God who rules over the angels, will spread a wonderful feast for all the people. How many of you like the feast? Yeah. Amen, right? You're like, I like the feast. We'll spread a wonderful feast for all the people of the world. It'll be a delicious banquet with clear, well-aged wine and choice meat. Do you love a good barbecue? Do you love a good tailgate party? Do you love a good Thanksgiving? Do you love a good Christmas party? Do you love a good wedding reception? Then you are gonna have your mind and taste buds blown in the kingdom of God. It's gonna be awesome. It's gonna be awesome. So this is why as God's people, we, we eat not for gluttony, but for God. We drink not to forget our problems, but to hope for our future. This is why God's people are to be about celebration and rejoicing without sinning, because sinning causes suffering, but worshiping is wonderful, amen? Sinning causes suffering, but worshiping is wonderful. And so that's all that's happening here. Jesus provides, and it's amazing. This is a foretaste. This is a foreshadowing. This is the dress rehearsal for the kingdom of God. Last slide. The kingdom starts with Jesus. This is the first of his signs. The point and purpose of a sign is to point you toward an ultimate destination. It's awesome when people get healed in the Bible. It's awesome when God provides in the Bible. But the whole point of every sign is not that it's an end in itself, but it is a directive pointing you toward the kingdom of God. That's why there's signs on the freeway. You saw them and came in. We love you, we're glad to have you. Every one of the roughly three dozen miracles that Jesus does is to point, here's the king, there's the kingdom. And when the king shows up and the kingdom shows up, things change. Water becomes wine. Dead people become alive. People that are separated from God are reconciled to God. Those who are blind see. Those who are deaf hear. Those who are lame are doing backflips. When the king shows up and the kingdom shows off, everything changes. And the signs are revealing that the king has arrived and that the kingdom is coming. Amen? Amen. So there's a lot of joy here. This is the first of his signs. Jesus did at Canaan Galilee and manifested his glory. They start to see who he is. They start to see what he does. They start to see what his eternal plan might be. And his disciples believed in him. Here's the key, here's the point. I need you to believe in Jesus. I need you to believe in Jesus. You can't just say, 
Well, that's amazing. No, 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 no. He doesn't just want you to be impressed by him. He wants you to be in relationship with him. So they saw the signs and they believed in him. He is God, He'd become a man. He's gonna live without sin, die for our sin, rise as our victor, bring us into his eternal kingdom and bring his eternal kingdom invariably and eventually to the earth. Here's what I need you to know. If you believe in Jesus, you have a one-way ticket to this eternal kingdom party that never ends. And I want you all to be on the guest list. I want you all to make the party. And the key is to believe in Jesus, amen? That's what we're all about. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Now, let me say this. In our Western culture, faith is internal and private. It is not to be external and public. I first saw this when I was in college in a class where we were debating a moral, social, political issue. Someone said, well, as a Christian, I believe, and somebody immediately shut them down and said, keep your religion to yourself. What they're saying is that is an internal and private matter. It is not an external and public matter. When Jesus shows up and Jesus shows off and he does a miracle, what he is saying is I work on the internal and the external. I, I work on what is unseen in you and everything that is seen around you. Jesus refuses to play by the restrictions and limitations of the culture in which we exist. When he provides, it's public, it is external, it is not private and internal. Jesus is Lord over all. He rules over everything inside of you and everything that surrounds you. And that is our great and glorious King. Now let me close with this. We're in Scottsdale, Arizona. Here's what I have decided this week. I'll field test my concept on you. Everybody who comes to Scottsdale ultimately is looking for the kingdom of God. Because it is sunny. You could tell these people come here because of the sun. They're all pasty white Cubs fans that are blinking and ha you know, <laughs> they're trying to figure out what to do with this flaming ball in the sky that they've not seen for six months, right? People come here because it's sunny in the kingdom of God. It says in the Bible that the sun will never set and that it'll be sunny all the time because Jesus Christ, the son of God and all of his glory will be unveiled over all of the kingdom for all time. Everybody who comes to Scottsdale is looking for the kingdom of God whether they know it or not. And what happens my friend when they get here? They like to go to events and parties. We just had the Barrett Jackson Auto Auction, which I love, which is to the glory of cars. This week, we're gonna have coming up very soon, the, uh, the Phoenix Waste Management Open, which is to the glory of golf. And people will eat and drink, but for sure not to the glory of God. There are some people doing some nefarious things at the, at the golf open, but it is to the glory of golf. And as soon as that's over, what's rolling in really soon? Spring training to the glory of baseball. People roll into the valley and they sit outside and they go to Old Town and they eat at the restaurants and they pour themselves a drink and they bask in the sun and they get together and cheer and they make relationships and they hold parties and nobody knows it, but they're all looking for Jesus. They're all looking for a party that never ends. They're all looking for the kingdom of God. Here's our mission at the Trinity Church. We are here to throw parties for the king in preparation for the kingdom, okay? We're gonna continue to work on this old property 
so that it looks like the kingdom of God. As people come here, the fastest growing city, fastest growing county in America, and as people come from all over the nation and nations during this great and glorious season, we want this to be a place where we're known for our joy, our freedom, our hope, our moderation, our love, our relationships. Come and taste and see that the Lord is good. Come be in God's presence. Come be with God's people. Come practice for the party that never ends, amen? I'll tell you what, I like the Barrett Jackson. I'm totally cool with golf. I'm a big fan of spring training. Those parties will come to an end and there's one party that'll never end. And what we're gonna do right now, we're gonna participate in and practice for that party. So I'm gonna bring the band forward and you guys need to know you're the band as well. So we're all gonna sing and celebrate, amen? And I want you to know that as we partake of communion, it's for those who believe in Jesus. If you believe in Jesus or come to believe in him today, the bread is to remind us of the broken body of Jesus and that what we eat should be in relationship to God. When we partake of the drink, it is to remind us of the shed blood of Jesus who takes away the sins of the world and is preparing for us a kingdom party that'll never end. And we're gonna have juice and wine. You know why? We love you. We value our relationship with you over our freedom. We believe that people matter more than issues and we want you to operate according to conscience. And whether you take wine or you take juice, if you take it for Jesus, we're excited about that, amen? So you stand, all pray, we'll sing, have a good time, amen? amen? Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to do ministry here in Scottsdale, Arizona. Lord God, we confess that uh, that every restaurant, every happy hour, every spring training facility, every car show, every golf course, every tennis court, every swimming pool is ultimately surrounded by people who don't know it, but they got kicked out of a garden and they're looking for the kingdom. They are wandering through a spiritual and literal desert wanting to find peace, wanting to find hope, wanting to find joy, wanting to find life. And Lord Jesus, thank you that we have found it in you. And we pray for these dear people that they would do the same. Jesus, thank you that your kingdom is gonna be a party, that we will lack nothing, even though we bring nothing. Jesus, thank you that we'll be together and we'll be joyful and we'll be happy and we'll be healthy and we'll be holy and we'll be healed. Until that great wedding celebration, Lord Jesus, we come as your people, we come in your presence to sing your praises, to prepare for that party in your good name, amen.